How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. Increasingly, automated systems are being used to aid in the delivery of important social service programs. I'm Jeffrey Rockwell, director of the Cool Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Alberta. Government's role in delivering social service programs has always been important. However, since the onset of COVID-19, we've developed a new appreciation for the actual frontline delivery interface of programs. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Razzo, a social legal scholar whose work in the area of administrative law focuses on the relationship of human and non-human collaboration on institutional decision-making and the resulting legal and ethical outcomes. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, with Dr. Jennifer Razzo. Dr. Razzo, welcome to the podcast. Great, thanks for having me. Well, I want to start out with your time outside of academia before we segue into your research. Now, you worked as in-house counsel with the City of Toronto during the Rob Ford years, and that must have been a really interesting time. I'm wondering, what did you learn during your time in that role, and how did that shape the direction of your current work? I was a lawyer in City of Toronto Legal Services Division when Rob Ford was elected as mayor, which I think surprised many people (laughs) at the time. Uh, It was definitely um, quite a colorful time to be (laughs) a city lawyer. Certainly, we had lots of questions when we were um, going to court uh, from judges and other people about (laughs) some of the antics that were happening at City Hall. So that was quite an interesting position to be in as a lawyer representing the city, <laughs> having to field questions <laughs> from uh, the public. But um, uh, in terms of my own legal practice, uh, it didn't really change too much uh, with Rob Ford's election. Uh, my work centered on human rights law and also what's called social welfare law. So a lot of my practice was centered on uh, caseworkers who had clients who were receiving um, social assistance benefits uh, through the Ontario Works Program, which although it's a provincial program, was delivered municipally in Ontario. So I fielded and addressed a lot of uh, litigation that would come through Uh, that would have been launched by individuals receiving Ontario Works benefits. um, And I would be responding on behalf of the city, uh, but also on behalf of the workers who were city employees. Uh, And I found through that work that there were many complicated dilemmas that would arise in the Ontario Works program that weren't easily captured by the uh, legal tools that individuals were trying to use to challenge how they'd been treated by the program. Um, So some would launch human rights complaints and they wouldn't really quite capture the kind of deep feeling of having been done wrong by the program. Um, the administrative tribunal system that would address those complaints very often would find ways to um, reject the complaints at early stages, so without really having resolved the complaints. And then caseworkers as well, a lot of the time, would feel frustrated, not necessarily because somebody had challenged their decision, but uh, they would feel frustrated with the um, limitations uh, in the program itself and uh, the types of things that they were able to do and not able to do for um, people who are in really dire situations. I've heard you say that law is socially constructed. And I'm wondering if you can explain what that means and how does that happen? 
the social construction of law is something that perhaps many of us intuitively understand, but when you hear the term social construction, it sounds kind of complicated. So that's a really great question. Um, what I mean by that is that while we might sometimes assume that law is something that's passed down by a legislature, so through a statute, for example, or that law is something that is pronounced by justices, let's say justices on the Supreme Court of Canada, for example, that those, of course, are sources of law in Canada, but those are not the end point when it comes to how law is given meaning. And in addition to those sources of law, law is given meaning, uh, or we can think of it as being enriched through the interactions of everyday people. So by that, I mean, you know, what social benefits law means. We can look to the statute to understand, you know, who is eligible for what, but social benefits laws are also given quite concrete meaning in those interactions between people who are applying for benefits and their caseworkers. And also, uh, in the interactions between caseworkers and their managers. Who's eligible for what is something that is answered through the statute, but it's also answered through those everyday interactions. Similarly, uh, what does the criminal law mean? You can look to the Criminal Code of Canada, but you may also look to the interactions between police officers and, let's say, Black Edmontonians uh, who might be carded uh, much more regularly than their uh, white uh, neighbors. And so, um, yes, criminal law means one thing when we look to the criminal code, but it means something quite different when it's experienced by somebody who's stopped more often than their neighbor uh, solely on the basis of the color of their skin. Um, I think we're going to dig into your research now and, and let's talk about something a little bit more specific. Let's talk about the Ontario Works, which was the subject of a recent research paper. Can you give us a high level overview of what you set out to investigate in that work? The Ontario Works program, as I mentioned, was a program that I had some uh, experience in through my practice with the City of Toronto. And when I went back to school to do my doctorate, I was really interested in digging a bit more deeply into how that program functioned. And one of the things that I found fascinating about Ontario Works was the important role of the discretion of frontline caseworkers and the uh, importance of discretion specifically in giving meaning to very complicated statutory framework that uh, sets out hundreds of rules about what types of benefits exist under the Ontario Works program and who's eligible or ineligible for those benefits and how much individuals are eligible. The Ontario Works program is sometimes described by people who work within the program as an area where there's no discretion. So when I would discuss my research with other um, folks who practiced law that involved the Ontario Works program, some of them would say, oh, well, you know, it's all just rules. Uh, the rules are just applied as they are, and that's the end of the story. There's so many rules, there can't be any discretion here. And managers of the program also had a similar take, some of them. Oh, it's just, you know, hundreds of rules. Caseworkers just look at the rules and then they just apply them to the person who's in front of them. But the rules are written flexibly. So there are lots of terms inside the rules that uh, require interpretation, which is not surprising for anyone who has an interest in the English language or um, even for anyone who has studied law. Uh, law in its written form is very often quite flexible. There's lots of room for interpretation and that's why so many interesting legal disputes make their ways to courts. So many of the rules in this program actually did include broad terms like 
reasonableness, for example. Uh, some rules would require that somebody might need to make reasonable efforts to find work if they were to be eligible for a series of benefits, top-up type benefits. And uh, what is a reasonable effort to find work? Well, of course, some people might say, well, that's very clear on its face. You just look to the policy. The policy has a list of examples uh, that answers that question. But many caseworkers, of course, would say, well, you know, but this client doesn't fit that list of examples. This other client has been trying really hard to find work, but they've been unsuccessful. This other person maybe needs a bit of nudging, but on the whole, I would judge their efforts to be reasonable. So as soon as you got into the details of the program, very soon you discovered that discretion um, was rampant. It was everywhere. So uh, my doctoral research was a project where I investigated that discretion. I wanted to know more about not just where the discretion was, but how uh, caseworkers used discretion. And so while some academics and advocates uh, rightfully are concerned about the discretion of frontline workers, specifically that their discretion might be used in biased ways, that they might be used discretion to punish folks uh, who are applying for benefits, or who they might uh, use discretion to favor some people and then uh, treat others quite harshly. I approach discretion with a bit of a kind of wider lens. I was more interested in, in the mechanics, the nuts and bolts, what's actually happening on the ground, and then interested in how caseworkers navigated this rule-bound program using their discretion. How did that uh, relationship work when you have this program with so many rules and yet so many holes within the rules that can be filled with different types of meanings uh, depending on the caseworker. So that was really kind of my starting point for my doctoral uh, research. And then through asking that very wide research question, I came to learn all about the fascinating role that different types of technologies played in the Ontario Works program to help kind of constrain caseworkers' discretion. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. And I, I love this line uh, from your work. Uh, this came from some qualitative research and it, it says, people's lives are not a drop-down menu. I, I just love that line. And I, I'm w- wondering if you can expand on the context of this quote and explain how, you know, technology plays into this discretion or, or lack thereof. Yeah, so that was definitely a statement that jumped out at me as well when this caseworker made the statement. So the quote in its broader context, um, one where a caseworker is describing to me at length how challenging or tricky it was for not just her, but many of her colleagues to work with a case management software program when faced with clients who had very complicated histories, complicated personal circumstances that didn't fit within the design of the software program. And so this quote is very rich. In it, the caseworker uh, talks about the system that uh, caseworkers are working within that makes decisions. And she describes it as making decisions for the caseworkers and that uh, the system takes the decision out of the caseworkers' hands. And then what happens to caseworkers in that circumstance is that they have to manipulate the system to make the decisions that we want. That's what she says. While on first glance, you might read that quotation and say, oh, this caseworker is talking about caseworkers just doing whatever they want 
no matter what um, the system says and that caseworkers have a lot of agency here manipulating the system. It's actually a much more complicated situation that she's describing. So the system she was talking about is the SAMS program, which was a software package that was introduced in Ontario in the about around 2014. And it is a program that has been designed as an off-the-shelf type of program. So it is advertised or marketed to uh, public administrators worldwide as being something that they can introduce into um, many of their programs, whether it's a social assistance program, whether it's a criminal justice type of program, child welfare, medical decision-making, and so on. And what happens is this software tool is introduced into a government agency, and then there are a series of kind of tweaks to the overall framework of the program so that it can function to a certain degree within a particular framework. So in this case, within the framework of the Ontario Works Program. The problem with this tool, the SAMS program, is that there were many fields, so we can think of them as uh, data entry fields in the software tool that uh, would give caseworkers a series of options to choose from. So for example, uh, you know, the reasonable efforts to find work question might be answered with um, a caseworker having to check off one of eight options. Like did your client, you know, attend a job interview this week? Did they um, send out a resume? Did they do X, Y, and Z? All of these different things. And what very often uh, would be the case was that a caseworker would have a client who had done something uh, or had a certain, you know, personal uh, characteristic or uh, a history that didn't fit in the drop-down menu options, and then caseworkers were left with the problem of what do I do in that situation, knowing, of course, if they didn't check one of the options, that what would happen is that the system, the SAM system, would generate a decision that may make this person ineligible for benefits, even if in the caseworker's view, according to their understanding of the law, the written law, this person should be eligible for benefits. So caseworkers then, and this caseworker who I call Stephanie, describes her actions in this way, that manipulating the system to get the desired outcome. But the desired outcome is one that, in Stephanie's view, accords with the legal framework. So it's not just an outcome that she wants personally. It's not just that she likes this client and she thinks that they deserve assistance, but that her sense of what uh, was lawful under the Ontario Works framework would only be satisfied if this person before her received benefits. And with the way that the SAM system was designed, she knew that if she answered none of the above, for example, with the characteristics that she could choose from, that the outcome that would be produced wouldn't accord with her sense of what the law uh, should be providing this person in this circumstance. The interesting thing about this quote is when Stephanie's describing manipulating the system, she is part of the system. And uh, I know we'll get into a discussion a little bit about human and non-human actors producing outcomes, but it's not just the SAMS program generating benefits decisions. Stephanie, uh, in quotations, <laughs> the name that I've given this caseworker is helping to generate that outcome as well. And so one of the things that my work interrogated was to what extent does Stephanie or any other caseworker have 
really robust agency to change the system. Certainly on a case-by-case -case basis here and there, there were opportunities for caseworkers to input data in such a way that an output, a decision, would flow that accorded with her sense of what the law required, but that wasn't possible in all cases. I found that to be uh, a really fascinating and troubling aspect of the use of technology in a program like the Ontario Works program, and something that I don't think was necessarily uh, within the minds of the uh, administrators who decided to procure the SAMS program in the first place. Yeah, so much to unpack there. First of all, I'm thinking about my own frustrating experience with one of these drop down menu scenarios. Uh, just the other day, in fact, where I was kind of put through this loop and, and just couldn't get out of it. That's a super frustrating place to be. Uh, but even more frustrating when you know, um, from the perspective of someone like Stephanie, that you're trying to drive to a certain legal outcome um, that's very contextualized, as you said, and very specific. And yet you're trying to do that with off-the-shelf software that's had a couple of tweaks to it, but really isn't meeting the needs of your situation. So that has to be super frustrating. I want to talk a bit more about uh, the comment you made about Stephanie being part of this system and, and talking about how non-human uh, decision-making tools like this, as well as the humans using them, kind of form this bigger system. And I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack what that looks like and, and how that actually, you know, you've, you've given a bit of a sense of how it plays out, but I wonder if we can kind of dig into that a little bit deeper. When reflecting on the interaction between humans and kind of non-humans, which I use to refer broadly to um, a wide range of uh, technologies, we look at how both of those categories of entities function together to generate outcomes and to produce an overall decision-making system, we find really interesting relationships and uh, really fascinating um, dynamics. So one thing that I find uh, is quite captivating and is something that a lot of critical algorithm scholars focus on as well in their work is that when new technologies are introduced, very often one of the features that is either marketed or assumed to accompany the new technology is a reduction of human labor. So uh, for example, the SAMS program was introduced uh, and marketed so that it would be understood to be a tool that could make the easy decisions for caseworkers so that they could then spend their time on the more difficult cases. Uh, and this is not uncommon when we think about um, risk assessment tools, for example, in criminal justice settings or in prison uh, settings. Very often those types of tools as well are marketed as uh, something that frontline officials can use to kind of take the pressure off so they can input some information about somebody or about a set of facts. And then that tool will uh, do the heavy lifting for them in kind of routine cases and reduce the burden on that human official, uh, generate some sort of whether it's a score or an output. And so then that person is freed up to do some other work. Uh, maybe focus on a trickier situation that might require more um, or a deeper use of their judgment. And what I found in my study of the Ontario Works Program and what uh, others have found um, studying other types of uh, what are sometimes called automated tools is that actually these types of tools uh, seem to disperse the uh, amount of work 
that is needed to be done to generate that outcome and very often make it harder to locate where that work or where that decision making is being done. So for example, in the Ontario Works program, we have Stephanie trying to figure out which drop-down menu uh, option she should select. And there's a lot of grappling with the different options happening in Stephanie's mind. Uh, she ultimately selects an option and then an outcome is generated. And that type of labor that she's going through in order to categorize somebody um, according to, let's say, one of eight options is something that's not um, visible to uh, those who are outside of the system who just see uh, what looks to be an automated result generated by Sam. Stephanie's work is erased in some way. So uh, this is something that I find quite interesting as a kind of magic trick that happens when we talk about automation, um, even when we talk about AI, because a lot of the heavy lifting that's done in entering data, in ensuring that data is as accurate as it can be, in um, maintaining systems, updating them so that they uh, reflect the most recent um, version of legal rules, for instance, um, maintaining databases and so on, all of that work ends up kind of getting erased or minimized when uh, we discuss automated decision-making systems. And yet uh, it is that uh, very real essential human work plus that automated tool that together generate an outcome. And so this is one area that uh, I think is fascinating, not only for those who are um, inclined towards kind of sociological or anthropological studies of uh, human and technological interactions, but for administrative lawyers, this is a really complicated area of study because administrative law tends to place responsibility for decisions on human officials um, who we assume we can identify easily and to date doesn't do as good of a job at understanding how to entangle the situation or how to understand the situation where you have many people, uh, some of whom are not government officials, who play significant roles in generating an outcome and how to account for and place responsibility appropriately when you also have an automated in quotations tool that is uh, functioning as an authoritative type of decision maker in many respects and also helping to generate that outcome. Yeah, there's a lot there and it, it does seem very enmeshed. Um, I, I also wonder about the people who programmed the drop-down menu. And I, I almost feel like, did they just let Stephanie down in this case? Why is there such a misalignment? And uh, it just seems like they should have captured, you know, the majority of the cases in a way that could streamline and 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 pro deliver on some of those efficiencies that were promised. Um, is that just kind of a, a mismanagement of an implementation of a system? Or, or why why is there such a mismatch there? That's a really fascinating area of study. And actually, that is a topic that I am planning to explore in a new <laughs> uh, project. So I um, just received funding from Shirk to investigate that very thing. So oh, fantastic. Is, yeah, you're not alone in wondering what's going on there. Um, so far, uh, it seems like there's a combination of in-house um, technologists, so people working within government, but also a very large number of folks who work at home, in many cases, doing kind of uh, tweaks, contracted out programming work uh, or adjustment work to uh, help get programs like SAMS online and to help debug them and um, 
and fix any of the glitches in the system. But certainly that workforce is uh, quite fragmented. Uh, and uh, my sense is that they approach the task quite differently than a caseworker would, uh, than an internal government policymaker would. Uh, and they may just have very discrete pieces of tasks. So they may be tasked with uh, designing uh, components of that drop-down menu, but might not understand how that drop-down menu fits within the larger framework that uh, SANS represents. So they might not have any understanding of, you know, what are these options and how do they function in terms of generating a decision about somebody's benefits. And they may have no understanding of, you know, what that broader statutory framework is uh, in which they are functioning and in which you would think they should be having some relationship with. So that's a whole area of study that is really at the um, cutting edge of this type of research and is something that I am uh, right on the cusp of getting into myself. Amazing. Well, I look forward to checking back with you to see what you found. I'm going to flip things around just a little bit. And I want to talk about uh, this from the perspective of the client. So the person who has applied for some kind of program, who's applied for some kind of benefits, and they are perhaps denied benefits or didn't get the outcome that they were hoping for. What does that look like from the client perspective when um, explaining the reasons why this administrative decision was made from a legal standpoint? I'm just wondering how that gets communicated and what that process looks like. Typically, that decision about whether benefits have been granted or not granted is communicated in a few different ways. So uh, in a program like Ontario Works, you may have a situation where a client finds out about a decision that's been made through a meeting with a caseworker. So you might have that face-to-face interaction Uh, where they're told, well, actually, it doesn't seem like you're eligible for this type of benefit to fund, let's say, you know, a new training program that you wanted. But I was able to find this other training program that can get you to the point where you would be eligible for the thing that you wanted. So we're giving you this other funding for now, and we'll come back in a few weeks and see how you've done, et cetera, et cetera. So there might be some communication in that type of setting. And certainly, some uh, deeper explanation and justification going along with that decision for very practical reasons. Caseworkers want to maintain good relationships with their clients will make it easier for caseworkers to do their jobs. Uh, However, in addition to that type of interaction, a more interpersonal interaction for a number of different benefits, a written decision is also something that's required. And that's a requirement set out under the statute, um, the Ontario Works uh, legislation. And so what those representations of decisions look like are typically decisions that come in letter form. And while they're written down, uh, and while we might expect that a written document is something that can be easily understood by somebody who has who is interacting with a benefits program quite regularly, it is often the case that those letters can be quite confusing. And when those letters are generated in the context of the Ontario Works program, very often they are written by the SAM software. And caseworkers have an opportunity to 
adjust the text of the letters, but it is an open question as to how often they actually do that because they have hundreds of clients and can't review every letter that gets sent out. And so those letters will often include references to the statute, to regulatory provisions that have presumably guided a caseworker to reach their decision, but sometimes will uh, contain uh, very minimal or thin information as to why somebody was found um, ineligible for benefits. And so some of the problems with, um, from an administrative law perspective, uh, include that in administrative law, there's an understanding that uh, not in every case, but in many circumstances, individuals should be receiving some form of reasons that they can make some sense of. And so those interpersonal discussions, uh, caseworker to client face-to-face -face discussions, sometimes do that much better than a written letter does. And uh, one of the problems with some of the letters clients receive is that they can be very hard for them to understand. Um, they might not really explain or justify very well why a decision was made. Uh, and certainly when it comes to clients knowing what they might do next, um, a letter might tell them, you know, you can appeal to the social benefits tribunal, for example, but uh, clients very often might not understand what that means, what that looks like, and that appeal rate, practically speaking, might be very far out of reach for most uh, folks who receive Ontario Works. So we might look at these letters as providing reasons um, for a decision, but when you look at them from the client's perspective, um, how accessible are those reasons? Are they in plain language? Um, what actual meaning do clients take from these letters? Those are very open questions. Uh, so there we have a bit of a disconnect between perhaps what program designers might think is satisfying that legal uh, requirement for some form of reasons. And um, from the client's perspective, what reasons uh, they might want to see in order to feel uh, that they fully understand why a decision was made. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it's already complicated, uh, difficult to understand, perhaps not very fulfilling in terms of just getting that form letter with the reasons. And then we were talking earlier about uh, AI. So now we um, have this situation potentially where we're adding artificial intelligence into the mix. And in some cases, creating a black box where the reasons aren't are less apparent even. Can you talk a bit about that and maybe project a little bit about what that process is going to look like as we kind of move in that direction of adding AI into uh, into these automation systems that already exist? Yeah, so I think that AI uh, might add a an additional layer onto what's already a, a situation that is hard to untangle. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is that already it is difficult to understand if we're taking this kind of institutional or system-wide perspective on how a decision is reached. Uh, it may be very hard to understand why a result was generated uh, when we're looking at the influence that different types of data inputs might have when we're trying to account for the role that caseworkers have in manipulating the system or massaging client data so that certain outcome is reached. Very often that work is uh, silent. Uh, caseworkers thinking 
on why they choose one drop-down menu option or another is not recorded anywhere. Or if, if they do write notes, those notes can be very difficult to find within a program like SANS. And then on top of that, software like SAMS might function in ways that are very hard to rationalize, uh, figure out the logic behind uh, why SAMS is functioning in a certain way. So already we have a situation in the context of that type of off-the-shelf software program that is difficult to understand in terms of the reasoning. If we are looking for kind of a logical thread that we can find or trace through <laughs> all that happened and the outcome that's produced. Why did that outcome happen? Why was that the decision that was made and not another decision? That can be a very fraught exercise. Um, you add AI on top of that situation and very often that's what would happen. You wouldn't have kind of a whole new system introduced. You might just have AI introduced on a select few uh, sets of decisions. So for example, we might uh, see AI introduced to help identify Ontario Works recipients who are at high risk of making fraudulent claims. There, we might then have an AI system on top of the SAMS program that flags individuals based on whatever personal characteristics, perhaps previous debts, um, who knows, uh, and flag them as at high risk for uh, filing false benefits applications. And then those people might get treated very differently in the SAMS program. Um, that just adds another layer of complication onto what is already a complicated situation. So some scholars and some lawyers uh, focus on the AI piece of the puzzle and say, well, this is creating a black box. We don't understand what's going on with the AI. We need explainable AI so that we can understand how the algorithms plus data plus et cetera, et cetera, are functioning, how they're doing the thing they're doing to generate an outcome. And as long as we have that kind of explainable AI, then we should be fine. But not only do I think that kind of misses the mark when we're looking at the difference between what's explainable versus what is a justifiable reason-based outcome, which is arguably what administrative law requires, not just an explanation, but some sort of legal justification as to why something was done. But in addition, the focus on explainability and on the AI piece, I think, obscures what's already happening, which is uh, something that is very difficult to explain or justify uh, if you're looking at it with an administrative law lens or even if you're just looking at it as kind of reasonable outsider. Well, I wanted to also touch on how these systems actually are put in place in the first place. And, and you talk about uh, things like the procurement process, the RFP process, and you've mentioned the need to innovate some of these um, pretty mundane back-end administrative processes. I'm wondering what kind of um, innovation would you like to see? What would that look like? RFP processes, uh, for those who are not familiar, is those are the processes that are used by governments, whether they're federal, provincial, municipal governments across Canada, who are faced with situations where they're trying to procure new infrastructure. So these are processes where uh, governments put out a call. They say, you know, we're looking to build some new bridges, for example. Uh, we would like contractors who want to build those bridges to tell us how they're going to do it under a budget, on time, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have very often pretty big players coming to the government in response to uh, requests for proposals or RFP 
with their proposal. How am I going to get this job done? How am I going to produce the infrastructure that you want? And uh, while those processes are effective to a certain degree in generating competition and in generating uh, innovation in some cases between the big players who are going to build the bridge, um, let's say, uh, they may not be appropriate when the thing that's being produced is uh, an, or the thing that's being procured is a decision-making system that is not just a bridge from point A to point B, but is a uh, very complicated tool that might need to draw on legacy data that might need to interface or interact with many other types of software that the government's already using that might need to function in a certain way that frontline officials can use it, that might need to be accessible to members of the public, and that might need to ultimately generate outcomes that accord with whatever we take the law to mean. And of course, I've already noted that the law very often is written in flexible language. So that type of dilemma or that type of problem that the government is faced with when they're looking for a tool that's going to do all of that is, I would argue, much more complex than the problem of, you know, we need a new bridge. Who's going to build us that bridge on time, on budget, et cetera, et cetera. Um, although there are many elements that are similar, uh, we can think of the responsibility for maintaining the bridge, uh, the responsibility for maintaining software and data infrastructures, for example, as being uh, something that might be a useful piece of the RFP process to um, reflect on when uh, that process is being used to uh, secure uh, software products. But certainly, uh, I think that an RFP process is ill-suited to tackling those many different elements that ultimately need to be in place for a software product to function well. So RFPs are not very good at ensuring that the product that is procured functions according to law. And so one thing that might need to happen uh, is a deeper reflection on whether that process that's used to secure certain types of infrastructure is at all appropriate for uh, securing technological infrastructures that have legal effects. Certainly, I would say that uh, there might be an ill-fitting <laughs> in that in that relationship. Uh, it's not impossible, but I think that the notion of what an RFP might look like, what the goals of that process might need to be, uh, certainly might require more robust type of framework uh, or more boxes that would need to be checked off. So not just a process that privileges uh, on-time, on-budget projects, but also a process that ensures um, responsible maintenance, that ensures accessibility, that ensures perhaps oversight of the legal functioning of the tool, uh, and so on and so forth. I want to end back on, on this question of, of why we're, we're doing this. And it seems like the push to further automate is really being driven by the need to reduce costs. So this idea of efficiency, being fiscally prudent, we're going to reduce costs. We've already kind of touched on, on this a little bit in the sense that perhaps it's not delivering on the promises. And yet we're, we're moving forward with it anyways. And we seem to be going down this path. And 
I just kind of wonder about uh, about that. I'm wondering what is the balance that we need to strike um, and what kind of outcomes are perhaps maybe more realistic for us to have, just given you know what you've learned through your research? Yeah, so I'm pausing because I think this is a really, uh, it's a tricky question to answer. Certainly, the pursuit of efficiency is not an unreasonable goal. I think that uh, efficiency is something that can benefit government departments. It can benefit those folks in the Ontario Works Program who are waiting for a decision on their benefits. Um, It can uh, benefit taxpayers who want to support governments who are trying to do more with less, let's say. At the same time, efficiency, I think, is uh, something that is too often assumed of certain types of tools and is assumed to not be something that we might find in more those uh, simpler types of um, decision-making situations. So thinking about the types of interactions that I described earlier, uh, that face-to-face interaction between a caseworker and a client Some might say that's an inefficient way of making decisions. A caseworker has to meet with a client. They both have to be in the same environment. The caseworker might be writing notes by hand. They then have to enter information into software, et cetera, et cetera. That's inefficient. Wouldn't it be more efficient for a client to just enter data into a web page on their own time? Get rid of the caseworker. That caseworker can do more complicated tasks, let's say. And then the system will decide whether the client is eligible for benefits. But as you can imagine, if the caseworker is having problems entering data into a system and choosing among drop-down menu options, a client might have even more trouble if those options don't fit their circumstances. Many folks don't have access to the types of broadband internet, computer infrastructures, and so on that they might need to do that data entry And many also might not have the technological know-how to do that, even if they did have access to those resources. Um, Is that efficient? And what is lost in that uh, set of circumstances I've just described? Um, Caseworkers will often describe themselves as sensing different things about their clients or wanting to dig more deeply into a client's um, circumstances to find out what's actually happening. Uh, For instance, if you have clients who are Um, recovering from addictions who might need extra support. And so you might look back or reflect on that caseworker-client interaction and say, actually, there's a lot of efficiency there. Uh, Perhaps there's a lot of um, understanding that's gained both ways from from the client in terms of understanding um, what might be available to them perhaps receiving early decisions from the caseworker in person so that they understand how the Ontario Works Program functions. And on the caseworker's part, being able to obtain relevant information from a client in order to actually figure out what they might be eligible for and also what path might be most beneficial to that client in that particular point in time. So while that caseworker-client relationship and that in-office relationship might be pinpointed as an inefficient one and an area for cutting back. And while it might be understood that it might be more efficient to uh, have a client enter information on their own in a web page, I think that that is a really um, 
oversimplified understanding of efficiency. And I would think that that very likely resonates with people today now that we're all living online. Uh, how many of us, as you even described yourself, have had to do things online uh, more and more these days? I've had to navigate with virtual, whether they're virtual benefits, virtual classrooms, <laughs> uh, virtual libraries, and so on, and are having a lot of trouble navigating those systems where uh, if we had access to a person who was an expert, in that system, if we could, let's say, just get through on the phone line to somebody who is responsible for a benefits program and ask the question that we can't find an answer to on the webpage, wouldn't that be more efficient? And so I think that there's a, a reason to push back perhaps on uh, the meaning that efficiency often takes um, when it's used in the context of introducing uh, new technologies into uh, older settings. And uh, I think that uh, efficiency is uh, a goal that is laudable, but it might be a more complicated uh, goal to achieve if we really start looking at what's involved in making uh, decisions and programs uh, like Ontario Works. Yeah, you've really kind of challenged the notion of what what some people might consider efficiency. I also think about the cost um, being offloaded onto the client. To, to gain perhaps what might be considered the efficiency. And in fact, I did wind up picking up the phone and talking to someone directly, which was very efficient and effective for me. Um, and ironically, uh, they also didn't understand their, their own website when I explained the situation. So <laughs> another Stephanie uh, kind of situation. This has been fantastic. Um, we could go on and on, but uh, we're going to have to wrap up our time. I just want to uh, give you the last word. And uh, you've already shared a little bit of what you're uh, working on in the future. Is there anything else uh, that you want to, to share that's coming up for you in terms of your, your research? Well, yes, as you've noted, um, I do have this research project that I'm very excited to dig into um, in the upcoming months about um, the work that those, uh, we might think of them as coders or technicians, uh, the work that they do bringing law to life. And I'm quite excited to do that. I also um, am very interested uh, in this notion of the digital welfare state, uh, what that looks like and how that might function, especially as uh, virtual uh, government offices have uh, really um, uh, exploded in the COVID era. So uh, that is something that I'm very keen to uh, start thinking about more deeply as we see uh, and have time to reflect on all that's happened in the past uh, number of months. Uh, and I am interested to see if perhaps this um, reality that we find ourselves in where so many of us uh, are living virtually uh, and living and working remotely, or those of us who are lucky enough to um, do so, whether uh, that changes the discussion about um, the benefits and perhaps uh, drawbacks of automation, of algorithmically generated decisions, and whether uh, perhaps we have a renewed sense of value in the work that frontline workers do, not just in social benefits contexts, but uh, across the board. I would hope that that would be something that comes out of all that we've been going through, um, but time will tell. So I will uh, be observing as a scholar does and uh, uh, plan to uh, continue to think deeply about these issues.
Fantastic. Well, Dr. Rasso, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing a little bit about your personal story and your research. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Katrina. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.